0: say to your kids, right? I mean, here's a couple things that my mom used to always say to us because she was the one that was usually around when we were in trouble. She would say this when I says, well, every, you know, Jimmy's doing it and Mark's doing it and Mike's doing it. She goes, well, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? I mean, did your parents ever say that to you? Yeah. Did you say that to your kids' parents? How about this? You better stop crying or else I'll Give you something to cry about. Yeah, you our parents talk to each other. How about this? Finish your dinner. There are starving children. Pick your country. Or how about this? There's no dessert until you finish your dinner. Um, this one is, this is the one that I heard all the time. Don't make me stop this car. Do <laughs> You guys ever hear that one? Or if I have to stop this car, there's going to be... Hell to pay, yeah. And then this is the one that we can't say anymore because it's really not politically correct. But my mom used to tell me this all the time. She always would say, I'm giving you back to the Indians. (laughs) I never really figured that one out. I meant to ask my dad, but I was a little afraid. But you know, um, children learn a lot from their parents. And and we find ourselves repeating things, you know, and we're, it's so easy for us to pass attitudes and actions on from generation to generation to generation, both good ones and poor ones, you know, and, and as we pass those things on, there are consequences to good ones, which become good consequences and to poor ones, which could become devastating consequences. And so this morning, we're going to just talk about family heritage. We're going to look at 34, 35, and 36 in the context of a family heritage, and how does a family heritage get built and developed, and, and what can we do about it as, as, as people. And so I want to take some time this morning, and I just want to review what we've done so far. I mean, you know, since we're covering already three chapters, I might as well start with Abraham and then just go all the way to 36, right? Yeah. See Byron, I'm good. Um, so, so let's do that because this is important because we're gonna see stuff being handed down from generation to generation to generation and then we're gonna get to 34 and we're gonna go, oh, I get it. But if we don't have that context, then we won't know that because things don't happen in a vacuum. Things just don't happen. People just don't make decisions out of the blue. They make decisions based on contextual things that happen in their lives. And and I want us to see what's been passed down from generation to generation. So when we start with Abraham, we know the story about Abraham. God called him, said, I'm going to send you to this land. I'll show you when you get there. He says, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And Abraham waited, and he 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 waited, and and God didn't come, and God didn't show up, and God didn't do what he said he was going to do. And like you and I, he said, well, there must be something I can do to help God along with his plan. So he decided, well, this would be a good idea. He and Sarah got together and says, well, if we can't do it this way, let's do it this way. Had Hagar. Hagar had Ishmael. Everything was cool because Ishmael now was going to be the heir. Abraham's plan was working out just fine until God showed up and said, Abraham, that's not the plan. And so he said, you know, by this time next year, you're going to have a son. He goes, yeah, right. I'm not doing that with Hagar again. And sure enough, Sarah got pregnant. And so now we have this behavior that we're seeing just in Abraham that was handed down. One is just an overriding principle that all of us do. You do it, I do it. If God doesn't move in our timing, we usually have a tendency to do it on our own, right? In fact, with me, I don't even wait for God's timing. I just do it on my own anyway. You know, and then then after the fact, I think, I probably should have checked with God on that one, you know? Um, But it's just so easy, isn't it, for us just to get into our routine, get into our day, get into our decision-making, and just completely leave God out of it altogether, we need to be a people who, who take God into consideration in everything that we do and all that we are. So besides that, there's three things that I think happened with Abraham that we can learn from. Every time there's an a, a attitude or action that's handed down, there's a consequence. So we're going to look at behaviors that get handed down. We're going to look at consequences of those behaviors. First thing we see is, is that Abraham and Sarah had this little deception that they worked out, right? Abraham told Sarah, that when, when we go into a city, what's you supposed to do? Yeah, tell her you're my sister. That's a little deceiving, right? How did that work out for them? Yeah, what a train wreck. And so the first thing they decided to do, well, let's just deceive, you know, and the the deception didn't really work. And then then once they decided that they were going to work out Abraham's plan, Hagar had a child, Ishmael. As soon as Hagar conceived, what happened to the relationship between Hagar and Sarah? Yeah, it became a problem. All of a sudden, Hagar started feeling like, hey, you know, I'm gonna be the one, and you're nothing. And then Sarah goes, oh, wait a minute, woman, that's not, and so there's competition that happened between Sarah and Hagar. So we have deception, we have competition, and then what happened after Abraham had Isaac, or Sarah, actually, we guys like to take credit for things we didn't do, but. um, (laughs) After Sarah had Isaac, who was the favorite son? Did, 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 was there a favorite? Yeah, Isaac. Isaac definitely was favorite. So, so we, have, we have deception, competition, favoritism. What are the consequences? Well, we already talked about that. Um, when you have deception and stuff happening, you start doing your own thing, there becomes um, dysfunction with people. So the consequences of the relationship that Sarah had with Hagar uh, was damaged. Also, Ishmael and Isaac's relationship was damaged. And here's the interesting thing about when we make decisions that aren't a part of God's plan. Did Hagar decide that she was the one who was going to have a relationship with Abraham? Hagar got drugged into the thing and she suffers the most serious consequences for decisions that she really had nothing to do with. Now, is that right? No, it's not right, but, but that's what happens when we make decisions that don't include God. We bring people into it and the consequences that they suffer are significant. In fact, when we look at, at, at Hagar, Hagar and Ishmael ultimately were sent away from the family basically to die. I mean, think about it, and, we, and if you remember when we studied this, they, they gave them some food and some water and sent them out into the desert. Now, I don't know if you've done very much walking out in the desert lately. But, but a little bit of a, a food and a little bit of water does not go a long way when there's nothing out there but sand, hot sun, and snakes and scorpions. And so they ran out of water, they ran out of food, and then they laid down to die. And if God hadn't stepped in, then, um, then Abraham and Sarah would have committed murder, basically. So consequences to behavior with, with uh, Abraham and Sarah. So then we get Isaac. Abraham sends his servant to Sarah's family says, hey, go find a wife for us. The servant's praying. You remember the story? He says, I want this kind of thing, this, and then. And he looks up, and it all happens. This beautiful woman who's industrious, who is a servant, who serves him and all his camels and everything. And so he brings Rebecca back to Isaac. And so let's look at some of these behaviors that were handed down from Abraham and Sarah to, to Isaac and Rebecca. Was there any kind of favoritism with Isaac and Rebecca? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you think? Uh, Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Clearly, they had chosen who was their favorites. Was there any competition? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the womb, they're wrestling. Esau's the man. Jacob's the mama's boy. So who in the womb wins? Esau's got his foot on Jacob's head, and he's flying up through there, and (laughs) Jacob's grabbing onto the heel. He comes out, he goes, I'm the man, Jacob, (laughs) let go of my heel. And from that point on, they were competing to each other, with each other, all the way through the birthright and the blessing. But where was another competition happening? Ooh, my favorite son is the one who's going to win this, right? There's competition between Isaac and Rebecca, right? Isaac says, hey, Esau, come here, be quiet, Go go kill yourself again, don't tell anybody bring it back. I'm going to bless you. Nobody's going to know. Except for Rebecca, who was raised in a family of deception, knew all about that. She's listening. She goes, oh man. So she grabs Jacob and goes, hey, we got to work quick. And so the ultimate deception happens. Jacob deceives Isaac, gets the blessing. What are the consequences? Esau becomes angry. Esau wants to kill his brother. He is so mad at his brother. Now, this, this just didn't happen now. Sometimes consequences within families becomes, becomes generational. And we'll see this as we go through 34, 35, 36, especially in chapter 36. What happened to Esau was a problem in Exodus with the Edomites. And we'll get into that. So, That was a mess. As a result of Esau becoming mad, Rebekah, who had her favorite son Jacob, didn't want her favorite son Jacob to die, said, "You you better go to my family. Just get out of here and be safe. So her favorite son, the one that she loved, the one that she was caring for, the one that she did everything so that he could get the blessing, she never sees him again. Never sees him again. And he never sees his mommy again. There's severe consequences when we do things um, that, that we ought not to be doing. And then Jacob leaves, and so he flees. The inheritance that he did all the deception to get, he doesn't get to enjoy for the next 20 years until he comes back, and really, ultimately, it doesn't really happen. He, turns, he takes over the, the family business, but all, all the real blessing stuff didn't really occur the way it normally does. So, consequences to the behavior. Now we find Jacob with um, Sarah and Rebekah's family with her brother Laban. Now Laban was a saint, right? You guys remember? And so Jacob gets to Laban's family and guess what happened in the midst of the 20 years he was with Laban? Do you think there was a little bit of deception happening? Man, there was nothing but deception. Do you think there was a little bit of competition going on? Yeah, let's go to favoritism. Was there any favoritism? Who did Jacob love? Rachel or Leah? Rachel. So, so J- Jacob definitely had favoritism. And then there was competition between Rachel and Leah that was unbelievable. They did a birthing competition that would make any woman faint. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And here's the thing that was interesting. I was reading this. Leah had children to get Jacob's love. She knew if she would have sons, Jacob might just love her. Rachel used Jacob's love to get sons because she, was, she, was, she wanted sons. And, she, and so she would come to Jacob and go, if you love me, you would do this. So, so here's this birthing contest. And I just want you to see this because if you see this, you'll understand 34, okay? So first, Leah has four boys. So Leah gets married, Rachel comes in after the fact, Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. It's important to remember those names, especially Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. The oldest sons born to Leah, did did Jacob love Leah? No, not really. Do you think he loved their sons? Probably not. Even if he did, do you think their sons felt loved because he didn't love their mother? This is an issue. Okay, so then what happens is Rachel says, this is not fair, I'm being shut out, it's four nothing, we barely got started. The game's gonna be over. So she comes to to Jacob and goes, Jacob, come on, I'm gonna die if you don't give me some children. And Jacob goes, listen, Rachel, I have bad news for you, but you know, you and Leah are having sex with the same man. Leah has four, you have nothing. Whose problem do you think this is? You know? it's not me baby I got bullets you need to and so she goes okay okay why don't we do this why don't you take Billa my maid and go in with her and so she so he does you know he's a man heck yeah come on and so Dan and Naphtali is born to Billa so now it's 4-2 it's looking pretty good Leah who stopped producing says whoa 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 whoa, whoa. this is getting too close Four nothing was okay. Four to two is too close. So he, she goes to, to, to Jacob and goes, Hey, why don't you lay with my maid, Zilpah, and you can have more sons? And so he says, Okay, he's a man. And so in, here comes Gad and Asher. Now it's the, 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 the things are getting a little bit out of hand here because now it's like six to two. You know, Rachel's getting, getting killed in this thing. But here's the sad thing, and, and Byron preached on this a few weeks ago the sons get involved now. Here's this parental competition. Reuben, who's the oldest son, is seeing this stuff happen. He's out in the field, and he finds his mandrakes. Mandrakes are these plants. You pull them up, and they got a root kind of like a potato, and you eat those things. It helps you conceive. And so he brings them to his mom, and he says, Hey, we'll wipe them out with these things, Mom. Come on, let's go. (laughs) Rachel sees that, and she goes oh man this is bad news so she goes to Leah and goes Leah you know what you know Jacob likes me better than you and you know that the chance of him sleeping with you is like remote but I'll tell you what you give me those mandrakes and I'll have him go in with you and and he does and I'm sure Rachel's thinking she hasn't had a baby in who knows how long so have at it well surprisingly Leah has a couple more kids is and zebulun now it's like eight to two this is like not fair And then Rachel has two. She avoids a shutout. And she has Joseph, and she has Benjamin later on in in chapter 35. Why do I say all this stuff? Because things don't happen in a vacuum. Think of the family dynamics. Twelve sons with four wives. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And the dynamics of all this, especially when Jacob loves one way more than he loves any of the others. So we have 10 sons that are not really excited about Jacob or their living situation. You understanding where I'm coming from now? So now as we get into chapter 34, we can see the difference, because what have these sons learned as they've been growing up in this family dynamic? They've learned how to compete. They've learned how to deceive. They learned that everything that you do in life is getting something for yourself. Somehow it's about me. It's about number one. It's about what I want. They learned about winning. You just got to do what you have to do to win. So this is kind of the family dynamic that they're, um, that they're growing up in. And so as we look at this and this stuff being handed down as actions and attitudes are being handed down to the sons, the sons are seeing the family dynamic and they get into the situation, they're going to behave based on what they're seeing behaviorally, what they're experiencing. And so it's no wonder that what happens, happens. Unless... Some transforming work of God happens in our lives. More than likely, we are going to move down the path that we learned from our parents. Because what ends up happening is the things that we're learning become so normal. See, to these guys, that wasn't anything abnormal. To us, looking at it from the outside, we're going, what in the world are these guys thinking? But to them, it's like, hey, this is what we've been experiencing for three generations and when you look at Laban, you have to assume that, that Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel grew up in an environment where deception and deceitfulness and selfishness and self-serving stuff was just part of their culture. And so to them, it wasn't abnormal. It was just their norm. And so when, when, when I do marital counseling and when I talk to people, especially in marital counseling and two people are coming from different places, they have norms, that they're just used to. You put the toilet paper on the top. That's just how you do it. And so this one does it at the bottom, and this one goes, what are you doing? That's not how it goes. And then they move it, right? There's, there's just things. When we argue, we argue. We get in each other's faces, and we argue, and we fight. But that's not how, how he does it. He goes, hey, no, no, no. We go to our corners until everything dies down. And then, so, so we have norms of how we normally do things, and if we don't recognize that, it causes major problems. Well, these guys had these kinds of norms happening in their, in their family, and I don't think they really understood that dynamic. That's just my personal opinion. So let's get into Genesis. <laughs> yeah, like we're going to get out of here by noon. Yeah. Now let's get into Genesis 33. Hopefully that background that will help you as we go through this. And actually we'll get through these two chapters pretty quick. 33.18 gives us a little bit of a context of what's going on. So Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padamaran and camped before the city. And then he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, or the God, God of Israel. Which is pretty cool because Doug has been sharing with us how Jacob is beginning to see God not as the God of Abraham and Isaac, but as his God. And he's beginning to see the personal relationship that he has with God. And so now he says, hey, this is an altar I'm building to God, the God of Israel, my God. And he has this awesome worship experience with God. And then we get to, to, to chapter 34, they're in Shechem, he just had this relationship with God, he just confirmed his relationship with God, and it says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now what that meant and what she was doing, I don't know, but it didn't turn out well because Shechem, in verse 2, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her and took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Does this ever happen to you? You just have this worship experience and then everything falls apart. And then Jacob heard heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. This tends to be a pattern with Jacob. Jacob doesn't really handle confrontation well, does he? Okay, so so first thing, he kind of cons his brother out of the the birthright, but then when he really cons him out of the the blessing, what does he do? Huge conflict, what does he do? He runs. And then he gets with Laban, and Laban is just deceitful and cheating him and changing his rules, and what does he do? He just figures out how to be deceitful with Laban. So Laban says, do this. He goes, well, I'll just feed him this stuff so there's more spotted ones. We'll do this. Well, I'll just feed him this stuff so there's more striped ones. And so he basically dealt with deceit with deceit. And then when things got really bad, what did he do? In the middle of the night, he got up, grabbed his whole family and split, hoping Laban would never find out. And when Laban showed up, if it wasn't for God, intervening, probably Jacob might have been ex-Jacob. And then when Esau's coming out with 400 men, did, did, did Jacob get his army together and get all his men together and get rid? No, he sent all the women and children up ahead of him in droves hoping that somehow Esau would be softened up by the time he got to Jacob. Jacob does not handle confrontation very well. And in this case, he didn't handle it very well either. He didn't do anything. So now we get to verse 6, and um, let's go to verse 7. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke to him and said, hey, you guys, really, he loves her. Our families can get along. We could intermarry. I mean, we could take a, you know, have your stuff. You could have our stuff. And, and the son said, well, you know what? Well, consider that in verse 15 under one condition. If you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live, by, live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, Then we will take our daughter and go. Now these words seem reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So they went to the people of the gate and said, hey, here's the plan. We're going to be able to, um, you know, intermingle. Jacob is rich. So, boy, business will be good. And so everybody agrees that they will get circumcised. Okay. Now we pick it up in verse 25. Now it came about... On the third day, when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city, unawares, and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Then Jacob's sons, the rest of them got got into the action. They came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. So here's what we see now. Jacob doesn't do anything. Jacob has favorites. Dinah is, is raped by... Shechem, Dinah, is Leah's daughter, so the brothers know that Jacob really doesn't care about Leah, and by implication, really doesn't care about Dinah, and really doesn't care about them, so he's not going to do anything. And so the sons go, if Jacob isn't going to do anything, we're going to do something ourselves. And here's kind of what happens when this kind of emotional stuff happens, is it ramps up. And so now they're not just mad at Shechem, they're mad at Jacob and Shechem. And when you know what happens when you get emotional, you get irrational, and sometimes you do things you probably shouldn't do, and they did something that was pretty outrageous. Not only did they murder every man in the city, but they used a covenant that God made with Abraham to to display to the world that I am their God and they are my people. They used circumcision, which is this holy thing that God established for his people, and they used it as an instrument to disable men so they could murder them. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So they learned deception, they learned dishonesty, they learned selfishness, and they managed to ramp it up one more level than something Jacob never would have dreamed of. Much of it built because of the favoritism and the sons knowing that their father didn't really care about Dinah, didn't really care about them, and so forget him. We're going to take care of this thing. And then Jacob's response in verse 30. And here's the thing that I think is really important for us to understand when we look at this whole thing, is that, that you know, the, the actions that we do and the attitudes that we do will be handed down. As parents, we do not live in a vacuum. As people, we do not live in a vacuum. Our attitudes and our actions are going to be handed down positively or negatively. And the decisions that Jacob has made about who he loved, who he didn't love, how he loved and how he didn't love, impacted his family significantly. And and again, like I said, it's much easier when the norm is here to ramp up and do something a little bit different than what the norm was previously. Because this is where it's comfortable. This is no big deal. You know, you get used to going 45 miles an hour down Huntington and there's no cop there. 48 is okay. Right? In 52. So then verse 30. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, Oh, man, you guys, why did you do that? God's not going to be happy. I mean, you can't use circumcision for that. I mean, we have a relationship. No, he goes, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Parasites, and my men being few in number, they're going to gather against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household." Wow, I, me, my, it's all about me. guys. you guys, do you know what is going to happen? Do you know how you guys impacted me? Do you guys know what you did? And Jacob being the strong person was thinking, we're dead. We're dead. There's no way we're going to fight against all these people when they come down on us. We are dead. In verse 31, they said, should we, should he treat our sister as a harlot? In other words, they said, so it's okay for them just to rape our daughter and then not do anything? Huh? Is that okay, Jacob? What are you thinking? Now here's the thing. We can kind of see this from the son's point of view. Because it, it, it's, 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 it's really something that's, that's critical and I want to look at it from the son's point of view and I want to take a few minutes to look at it from Jacob's point of view because here's the thing I've learned about children. And this is, this is really um, important, I think, for us to kind of take a little bit of a side note on is that, that my experience with my own daughters and then as I've ministered with families and done counseling with families and stuff is children, when they're like 1 to 10, maybe 11 or 12, um, we are their heroes, right? I mean, we can't do anything wrong. They love us. We're perfect. They just—they just love daddy, and they don't care if he's yelling at mom. They don't care if he's—they you know, don't care what he's doing because he's daddy. We, we're like invincible. And then they—then they turn to teenagers, and really, it doesn't matter what your values are, what your attitudes or actions are. It's a train wreck. So. The teenage years, you just put them in a box, you know, and just, you know, wait till they get 25. Um, but, you know, as they start maturing, here's the thing that's so important, is that as our children start maturing, those things that we didn't think were a very big deal, those things that might even we're so used to, we don't even recognize it, they start noticing those things they start noticing the behaviors that are unhealthy behaviors. They start noticing the things that we do and that we say that are not proper. And they become peers, right? And as peers, they come and they tell us, okay? Probably doesn't happen to you, This just happens to me. But they do. And my daughter will come and say, dad, why, why, why did you talk to mom like that? I go, what do you mean? I said, "Man, your tone of voice—it was just harsh." I go, "Really? Yeah." I go, "No," because I've been talking to Marge like that for like 35 years. (laughs) I didn't know she never said anything, and so I started paying attention, and I go, "Wow, she's right." I mean, I would just get a tone of voice and not even know I was getting a tone of voice that was just, it was hard. It was like, a, I mean, I, I can't explain it, but it was weird. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I did it. I don't know. All I know is my girls pointed it out and I chose to change because what happens is our kids begin to recognize things in us that they want to um, help us grow in. And parents, when we understand that, there's two things we can do. We can begin make changes or we can ignore it because our kids are our kids and how dare them tell us what to do. Um, and, and then, then that, that legacy um, gets handed down and you don't start seeing the transformation from generation to generation from generation. Now they may choose to do that, but it's much nicer if we as parents lead the way rather than making them be the ones who start turning the ship. Make sense? Well, with these guys, um, they took it to the extreme. You know, they, they, their dad didn't love him. Their dad didn't love Dinah. And so they took matters into their own, own hands and they didn't have spiritual direction that would allow them to make rational decisions. And they made an irrational decision. So let's look at it from Jacob's point of view. Jacob just had this worship experience with God where he says, you are my God. You're the God of Israel. He had a great worship experience and he walks out from his altar and his whole world just collapses around him. I mean, imagine how that must feel when, when you have this time with God and you're feeling so close to God and then all of a sudden it's like everything that could go wrong just went wrong. That's right. And you're going, man, well, I can't win. I can't win. Finally, God, I say, okay, you're my God. And then, then this, this is, this is what it means to have a relationship with God. And here's a challenge is, 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 is when we make decisions to start behaving in a more alignment with God, you think it's going to undo, undo 20 or 30 years of history with people? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's a process now of of beginning to have those behavioral changes be handed down generationally as we make changes and as our kids see us make changes and prayerfully they begin to make those same changes. And if our children know the Lord and our children have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, then they can take that process and, and continue to move this Titanic that's going in this direction, iceberg, we need to start changing direction and they can start. We change a few degrees, they change a few degrees, they change a few degrees, and we change our family history and our legacy because we are able to do that little by little by little. So here's, here's, here's Jacob, devastated. God was his God, and now all of a sudden I, he doesn't know where he is or what's going on. He just knows he's going to die. Okay? Every tribe in all of the land is going to come down on his family and they're going to make Shechem look like it was child's play. That's his attitude. Can you feel his tension? Can you feel his fear? Can you feel his anxiety? 35 verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Isn't that awesome? God always shows up. When things seem the most impossible, God shows up. I love God. He just shows up. We don't expect it. We're totally depressed. We're full of anxiety. And God comes and says, Jacob, get up. And you know what I love about God? He he didn't say, Jacob. Jacob, did I tell you to go to Shechem? Many commentators think Jacob should have been in Bethel. Because when he was in Bethel the first time with his head on a rock and he wrestled with God and he had a relation with God and he said, God, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then I will do this and I will do this and I will do this. And God did this and he did this and he did this and he did this and Jacob didn't do those things. And he should be in Bethel right now worshiping God because he made that, co- that communication with God that he was going to do that, but he ended up in Shechem because Shechem is a crossroads and it's more prosperous and he can make more money it he can be more successful so God didn't come to him and say, you know, if you'd have just listened to me, you would have saved yourself a lot of grief. When are you going to learn? When are you going to get your act together? If you can just get your act together, maybe we can move forward. Did God do any of that? He said, Jacob, get up. Come into my house. Worship me. Love me. Get to know me. Trust me. I love you. I have a plan for you. Let's move forward, Jacob. Jacob. I love that about God's grace. Any of you guys just pitiful, self-centered, narcissistic sinners like me? And God comes to me and he says, Dave, I love you. Come into my presence. I forgive you. I love you. I have a plan for you. You're my son. You're my masterpiece. And I go, God, you have no clue. I'm a mess. I'm a disaster. I'm a train wreck. He goes, I know. I love you. I have a plan for you. I'm transforming you. I'm going to use you. Praise the Lord. That's our God. He's so gracious. He's f- so full of grace. And he tells him, Go to Shechem, have this worship experience with me. And then Jacob says, um, He says, to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Here's what's exciting about this. God comes to Jacob and says, I love you. Jacob comes to God and says, because you love me, I'm putting away my idols. See, God comes to Jacob in grace. Jacob doesn't come to God and say, God, here's the deal. I'm going to put away my idols, and I'm going to be good, and I'm going to behave myself, and I'm going to give money, and I'm going to tithe, and I'm going to go to church for for six weeks straight. And then after that, I'm going to come to you and see if you'll accept me. You guys ever do that? Here's the deal, God. I'll prove to you that this time I'm really, 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 really serious. No. God comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, get up. Come worship me. And Jacob goes, oh, thank you, I love you, and you know what? I'm going to put away all my idols. All those things that are taking the place of you, all those things that I'm using as a substitute for you, I'm putting them away. And he tells the people to put away all their idols. And so then it says in verse 4, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So the influence now that Jacob is having on his family is transformational. So they're not just putting away their idols, they're giving all their idols to him so he can take them and he can hide them under the tree. They're at Shechem. Isn't that awesome? And we can do the same thing. We can take all the idols, all the things that are more important to us, all those things that are are replacing God, The things that give us security, the things that give us a sense of purpose, the things that make us feel successful, all those things that we're putting in the place of God, we can take those things and we can bring them to the tree, we can bring them to the cross, we can bring them to that place where Jesus hung and died and bled and says, I love you so much, I'm going to give my life for you so that you can live life abundantly. We take all the things that we're using to replace that love, we bury them at the cross and say, Lord, I am yours. I want to move forward fresh and free and released. What a great thing God allows us to do. And then, as we get to verse 5, a coincidence happens. It just blows my mind. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Wow, what a coincidence! You know, what, you know what I love about God is the more I obey God and the more I walk with God, the more coincidences happen that, that are just kind of mind-blowing, you know? So, so Jacob came to Luz, which is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El-Bethel. This is really exciting because there, that's where God revealed himself. El-Bethel is the God of Bethel. So not, he's not just saying, hey, this is the place of God. He said, this is where I'm coming to the God of the place of God. Don't miss that, you guys. See, when we come to Grace Fellowship, we shouldn't be coming to Grace Fellowship. We should be coming to the God of Grace Fellowship. (laughs) See, when we come and worship, if we're coming to Grace Fellowship, you know when we worship, you know, Ricky just isn't moving around enough. You know, I wish Rachel would just do more stuff. I wish and we start picking at it because we're coming to Grace Fellowship. When we're coming to the God of Grace Fellowship, we're going, oh man, a thousand. I mean, we are with God Almighty. Amen. We don't have we don't have time, room, or space to worry about who's doing what here because we're in the presence of the God of Grace Fellowship. Amen. Amen. When we come to this book, we so often come to the Bible. You know what happens when we come to the Bible? Boring. But you know when we come to the God of the Bible, all kinds of things come to life because the God of the Bible inspired this and the God of the Bible filled me with the Spirit and when my spirit and the Spirit that inspired the Bible come together, the Bible comes alive. Amen. It's the God of the Bible that I want to come to. If I'm trying to earn God's love or earn God's grace or earn some kind of relation with God because I'm going to read my Bible a half an hour, boring. But when I get to come to God and let God talk to me, wow, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. So, sorry, I got excited. <laughs> verse 9, well, the verse 8, this is kind of interesting. This is a side note, but in verse 8, it says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried before Bethel under the oak, and it was named Allah Baruch, which is weeping. So, she, just Deborah, if you remember, was Rebecca's nurse. So Jacob is a mama's boy. So Rebecca loved Jacob more than anything. Who took care of Jacob? Deborah. So Deborah and Jacob are really tight. So who knows what happened? Did she find out Jacob was there and she came to see him? Did he send for her? Anyways, um, she passed away there, which is significant because we'll see a lot of things have happened in Jacob's life in these three chapters. And then in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padamaram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You'll no longer become Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, but your name shall be Israel. So your name will be changed from um, Jacob to, to Israel, which is prince that prevails with God. So he's, he's now not a heel grabber, but somebody who, who wants to have a deep relationship with God. And he says, uh, thus he said to him, go to go also He's, God also said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. I made this commitment to you before and I kept it. I'm making this commitment to you again and I'm going to keep it. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give to Abraham, which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel. So Jacob has this awesome worship experience. He meets with God. God reaffirms his promise. God tells him, it's not about you, Jacob, get that out of your system. It's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's about me. I am God Almighty. I have a plan for you. I am going to execute that plan for you. Jacob, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you. Are you guys getting this hint? It's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you. It's about God and God's plan for us. And so he says this to Jacob. And you know, the interesting thing about this, and who knows what was going on because the Scripture doesn't tell us But when God comes to Jacob and he says, arise, go to Bethel, and he says, and live there and make an altar there to God, okay? So now in verse 16, it says that then they journeyed from Bethel. And I'm thinking, did he already forget? I mean, this dude's more ADD than I am. And who knows what happened? Because we see later on that Isaac passed away. And so maybe he got news that his father was sick. But for some reason, he left. He went to Bethel. And then it says, "Why there was some distance to go from Ephra, Rachel began to give birth, and she was suffering severe labor. Now, this is really curious to me, because that was the only reason I could figure out he would leave, because there had to be a reason, because Rachel had to be very pregnant. So who in their right mind would take a very pregnant, except for Joseph when they had to do the census. But other than that... <laughs> Take a very pregnant woman on a tough journey. And so while she was giving birth, she passed away. Says she was in severe labor. The midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. Verse 18, came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. This is really important because she called him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, Jacob called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Okay, get this. Son of my right hand. Who is the son of Jacob's right hand legally? The oldest son. Whose oldest son? Reuben. Whose oldest son's mother? Leah. Who does he love more? Rachel? Or Leah? Rachel. So now we have this baby who is becoming Jacob's heir, according to interpretation maybe of what Reuben might be thinking. Okay. So if we see the family dynamic, then we can look at what happened next and why it may have happened next. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So he made a big deal about Rachel dying, which I, I totally agree with. And, and then, is, then Israel journeyed on, pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Now listen to this in verse 22. It came about while Israel was dwelling, dwelling in that place that Reuben, the oldest son, went and lay with Billah. Who's Billah? That's right, Rachel's handmaiden. So he ga- goes and lays with Rachel's maid and then Israel heard of it. So again, we, if we understand the context of what's going on, we can understand what message Reuben is sending to his father. And what is the message that Jacob sends back to Reuben for this behavior? I heard of it. Okay. So what happens if sons don't have consequences for their behavior? We'll see as we move through this book uh, the behavior of the sons and what happens when there's no consequences to their behavior. It's kind of interesting. There's this there's this challenge now because of decisions that were made and stuff that was passed down from generation to generation. Then we see 23 to 28, all of the um, the brothers or 27. This cracks me up because we just started talking about all of these brothers. These guys, this is a train wreck. And these are the 12 tribes that are, are going to be God's chosen people. I'm thinking, God, are you serious? And, and when, I, when I see this, I go, there's hope. <laughs> there's hope for me. I mean, if God chooses these guys and he chooses to have these guys be the 12 tribes, there's hope for me. God's grace and God's mercy and God's capability of taking guys that are absolutely a mess and use them to fulfill his purposes is beyond belief. But that's how God is. No matter what you've done or where you are, God has a plan for you that's a perfect plan. And there's nothing that you have done or could do that will keep his love from coming upon you and allowing you to be all that he's called you to be. To me, that is just really, really good news. And then um, 28 and 29, Isaac passes away. I'm almost done. Verse 36, it'll only take me a half an hour to go through this, so don't worry about it. The only reason I want to do 36 is a record of um, Esau. And it's interesting. God puts this in there. Um, you know, Esau, when the blessing was given to, J- to, to uh, Jacob, Esau came and says, God, please give me a blessing. He says, I can't. I already gave it to, to uh, your brother. And he says, yeah, but, but, but here's what I'll tell you. You're going to serve under your brother. Your brother's going to rule over you, but you will break his yoke. And this is just that being fulfilled. Esau um, ends up moving away. We go to verse 6, after verse 1 through 5 tells about all his wives and stuff. Verse 6 says, Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could could not sustain them because of their livestock." So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. And then it says, Esau is Edom. And again, you know, we start looking at the implications of stuff that we hand down generationally. Isaac and Rebekah had favorites. And and Esau and Jacob suffered because of the favorites. Esau um, became an enemy of Israel. And so Esau passed that hatred down to his kids. He hated them, and it was 20 years that he hated his brother. 20 years he told his kids what a slime bag that was, and they go, well, who's Jacob? You don't need to know about Jacob. He's a slime bag, he's a dirt bag, he's a crook, he's a scheming lion, no good for nothing, and if I give my hands on him, I am not just going to kill him. I'm going to torture him and kill him. And so that's the, that's the message that was sent to his family, and his family passed that on from generation to generation until um, today. And then as we continue to go forward, just one note as we go through this, because there's a whole heritage of of the lineage of Esau and the fulfillment of Esau becoming a great nation. And it's interesting because from Jacob's point of view, I see this and I go, huh? In verse 31, it says, now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Well, if you go back to 9 through 12, God says, hey, some kings are going to come forth from you. And I'm Jacob going, huh, wait a minute, this isn't right. You told me some kings were going to come forth from me and here's my brother who married all kinds of harlots and did all kinds of bad stuff and all these kings are happening to him and all this stuff's happening to him and he's building this huge thing and all I'm doing is wander around the wilderness. So here's the deal. God is God and we're not. Amen? God is God and we're not. But here's the good news about, about how God works. Is God does want to change our family heritage, and I believe that today each one of us can choose whether or not we want to be a people who, who begin that change of our family heritage or, be, or continue to move our family heritage in a positive direction. And I really don't know where each of you are at today. I mean, we could be in a bunch of different places. There could be some of you that, that are going, you know, it's been so long since God has done anything. I'm not really sure he's even out there. It's been such a dry spell for me, and I just haven't really experienced God in such a long time. It just seems like, like he's just not out there. God's going to show up, I promise you. There may be some of you that are feeling, you know, I have made such a mess of my family. I'm not sure that it's even possible that we could fix this thing. I'm telling you, God's going to show up. God is going to show up. He is going to bring bring redemption. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring change. There may be some of you have been hurt by your family and um, you're suffering as a result and things have been done that haven't been fair, that haven't been right. God will show up. There are brothers and sisters who haven't talked to each other in years over things that have gone on. God wants to show up. God wants to change that heritage. God wants to change those attitudes and actions that bring division and dissension and wants to build godly stuff that brings harmony and unity. Today can be the day that each of us begin to change that. It just is a choice. God says, arise and come. Worship me. Trust me. Learn from me. Grow in me. Let me change you trust my timing, you become who you need to become in Christ and I'll take care of the other stuff. God is going to do that. And imagine what could happen if each one of us chose to become people who are change agents in our families, change agents in our community, change agents in our neighborhood. Imagine what could happen as godly families are handed down to godly families life-changing behaviors. That begin to impact neighborhoods, and all of a sudden a world changes because people are loving each other for Jesus, not serving each other to get what we want to get out of life. Could be revolutionary, will be revolutionary, and I promise you God is going to show up and God is going to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being our God. You are Almighty God. And you've called us, Lord, you've called us to impact our world. You've called us as husbands and wives to have a relationship that honors you, that reflects you, your love for the church, your respect for the church, the church's love and respect for you. And Lord, we choose to do that as husbands and as wives and as mothers and as fathers, to be people who are used by you to build a family heritage and legacy that is eternal. Do that work in us by the power of your spirit. We're going to give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.